Those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who live virtuously. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to the proclamation of your word, Father, even as we come to the reading of your word, which is primary to our worship of you and our growth as disciples, bless your word to our hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, open our hearts that the word that is read and preached might be true and faithful and might truly flood our hearts and make us more like Jesus. So we commit this word to you. We commit this message to you. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13 as we begin this last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at the first eight verses, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in, in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Virtue is not talked about much in our culture today. Some have said that virtue has been replaced by self-esteem. We hear a lot of talk about self-esteem in the public square. When I came across the topic of virtue in the writings of several economists, I took notice. Frankly, I never thought I would see a discussion about economics and virtue in the same sentence. These economists view economics from a biblical perspective, and they champion this agenda. Listen to it. A free and virtuous society promoting human flourishing. These economists view that we as a country, as a culture, will never have a truly free market economy that promotes human flourishing apart from a virtuous people. Have you ever thought about virtue being central to one's economic life? It is. How might we define virtue? One definition is simply uh, moral excellence with the understanding that God is the ideal for moral excellence. Another definition is virtues are the basic stuff of Christian, the moral Christian life. Virtues help us habitually do good, meaning 
good according to the Scriptures. Perhaps the best understanding of virtue is from the Scriptures themselves. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8. through 8. Turn there. Let me read it for us. 2 Peter 1, 5-8. through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, Peter gives us a list of virtues, living consistent with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would suggest that the letter to the Hebrews gives us as well an understanding of virtue. The letter ends with the exhortation to live out the glorious doctrines that the author has declared in chapters 1 through 12 by living virtuously, living consistent with them. Orthodoxy, chapters 1 through 12. Orthopraxis, chapter 13, might be another way to think about it. Today we return to the series, Hebrews, Holding Fast in Christ. For 12 chapters, as I just said, the author has written from the, from the perspective of a pastor. He has exhorted his congregation to persevere in holding fast in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue embracing the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ, rather than bending to the cultural pressure to forsake Christ and return to the practice of Judaism. That's what the original recipients of this letter were facing. And the, and the writer declared a high Christology, the doctrine of Christ, to his congregation and exhorted them to hold fast in Christ. Well, maybe you would agree with me. The author, pastor's exhortation in Hebrews is needed today. For the church, for you and for me, to hold fast in Christ and not forsake him because of cultural pressure to give up doctrine, to give up living consistent with the truth. The letter concludes in chapter 13, very much like other epistles, with practical implications of living out Christian doctrine virtuously, orthopraxis. Well, what are the practical implications or virtues that the author puts before us today? He really gives us seven, and these are virtues or characteristics that I believe the author intentionally wrote that were specific to the struggle of his congregation as they were suffering persecution, the pressure to forsake Christ. And I will follow Rick Phillips' scheme where he organizes six of these virtues under three. And so we'll look primarily at brotherly love that includes hospitality and remembering those in prison. Secondly, we'll consider holiness, which looks at 
honoring marriage and being faithful in marriage and contentment. And then we'll look at imitation. And verse 8 really will be our application, our main application point today. In other words, how in the world can we be faithful in living consistent with the glorious doctrines that are declared in all of the scriptures? We certainly don't have the ability to do that in and of ourselves, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is trustworthy and who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We'll end with looking at the trustworthiness of Christ that we might be confident in His power working in and through us. So let's look at brotherly love. First, those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who love the brethren. Look at verses 1 through 3. Francis Schaeffer, in his great work, The Great Evangelical Disaster, wrote about the importance of love. Quote, Yet without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen. Even when we give proper answers, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men who are about us. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Schaefer reflects the significance and necessity of brotherly love to true Christianity. And that is attested in the scriptures. How did Jesus summarize the Ten Commandments in Matthew 22? Love God and love your neighbor. In John chapter 13, as well as in John chapter 15, Jesus gives a new commandment. He gives this commandment to his disciples to love one another as I have loved you. Paul exhorted the believers, as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, to faith, hope, and love. And then he said, but the greatest of these is love. And John teaches that the chief way we know we are born of God is love. John thir- uh, 1 John 4, 7. Well, I'm sorry, uh, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you you have love for one another. Brotherly love may be defined in a number of ways. But as I've read Hebrews and I've just simply thought about what what would be a working definition of love in the context of what this author, this pastor was writing to his congregation. And this is what I came up with. Take it or leave it, but this is my... This is my working definition. Love is this, the act of setting self aside to meet the needs of another. And that's about as simple as it gets. But I think that little definition is consistent with what we read in John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Listen to John. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love 
abide in him. Setting self aside to demonstrate love by meeting the needs of others. The author, pastor of Hebrews, exhorted the believers of his day to live consistent with the doctrine of Christ, to love one another. 1 John 4, 9 through 11, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so specifically, the, the author, pastor of Hebrews, calls his congregation in the midst of their struggle with persecution to love one another in, in two specific ways here. By the way, it's not exhaustive. This is just representative. The author is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he could have used other virtues, but he uses these. First, hospitality, verse 2. And this is hospitality to strangers who were fellow believers. And it was really important to show hospitality. Many of us know in the first century inns, hotels, were often very dangerous and of questionable <laughs> reputation. And so travelers going from point A to point B needed a place to stay and to opens, open one's home to a traveler who was a fellow believer was meeting a great need. And the author here says it's a powerful demonstration of brotherly love. The reference to entertaining strangers here is obviously from Abraham who showed hospitality to the stranger's this theophany in Genesis chapter 18. And then another way the, the author, pastor, encouraged his congregation to show brotherly love was to meet the needs of those who were in prison, who were mistreated, presumably for their faith. He called his flock to remember them as though you were in prison with them. In other words, he is saying that love here, demonstrating love in this context means that you have empathy, sympathy, compassion for those who have need. They may have had a need for clothing, for food, for a shoulder to cry on, for encouragement, for advocacy with the authorities. Certainly those who were in prison and mistreated because of their faith had a great need for the body, the, the congregation to be praying for them. In our day, hospitality often looks like folks over for a meal or maybe opening up your home to a missionary who is traveling in for a conference or, or in need of a place to stay on home assignment. Remembering those in prison for their faith. I don't know personally anyone here in Little Rock that's in prison for their faith. But I know there are many of my brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. And I can, in a sense, show brotherly love to them by lifting them up in prayer. I believe the primary call of love in this context is not so much to list all the many ways we show hospitality, which is a legitimate thing to do. But, but what the author is seeking to do is to say this, love your brothers and sisters well. Set self aside. 
meet their needs. Recently, I was visiting a church member, and that church member, this is this is the con- this the conversation was not about this, but in passing, the church member said, "There was a point where I could not take my garbage cans to the curb." And she said, but another church member drove over and took my garbage cans to the curb. And I assumed after they were emptied, took them back. Now listen, that little act hardly warrants mentioning, doesn't it? Or could it be that that little act, as simple as, as it was, is a profound demonstration of what the author, pastor of Hebrews, is saying here. Will we look for needs as small or great as they may be and driven by love meet them? The monthly meal ministry here at Covenant was born out of a need during the COVID, I think we can call it crisis. (laughs) It was, yeah, to provide a meal once a month to, to someone who was not able to get out, but also to provide personal interaction for them. The ministry continues today, though we're not in a COVID pandemic crisis because of how powerful that little act of taking a meal over to someone and just sitting down and talking with them for just a little bit, how powerful that was, how powerful that is. That's another example of how we set self aside to meet, to show love to our brothers and sisters in, in meeting a need. And we have the opportunity to demonstrate love to people we have never met, to people we will likely never meet, never see but are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may remember Jeff last week introduced the crates for Ukraine. A list of items that goes in a specific crate in order to be sent to Ukraine to our sister denomination in Ukraine, the Presbyterian Church of Ukraine, to be distributed to our brothers and sisters and some that are not even in the church to meet specific needs. On February 5th, we're getting together as a church after worship to have a meal together, to bring the items that we have purchased. And parents, please get your children involved. Give them five bucks and and let them go to the store and buy one of these items on the list and let them Put it in the box. Let them participate in demonstrating love, brotherly love, to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are true strangers that we'll probably never meet but have a need. And I believe God's called us to be part of meeting that need. One virtue or practical implication of persevering and holding fast in Christ by faith is loving one another. And I want to encourage us as a church. I've just shared three examples of how we can love one another. 
and I know there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other examples that reflect the love that this congregation has for one another. And I want us to be encouraged. And I also want us to seek the Lord that we would love one another even more. Second, those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who pursue holiness by honoring marriage, by being faithful as husband and wife, and by contentment. Look at verses 4 through 6. The author of Hebrews, he wrote to believers who lived in a society that was sexually immoral. And I would say not only is our culture like theirs, characterized by all sorts of perversions and sexual immorality, but we, as a culture, we have dishonored the institution of marriage in ways that are unthinkable. The recent Respect of Marriage Act, signed into law this past December, provides statutory authority for same-sex marriages nationwide. In my view, this is not an act of respect, but a profound act of disrespect and dishonor for marriage. And we must condemn it as rebellion against God and his created order. The Bible clearly teaches, and we must wholeheartedly affirm, marriage is between one man and one woman. Honoring marriage is embracing God's institution, embracing his definition, embracing his precepts of marriage. Just for example, we find this clearly given in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Ephesians chapter 5. But the author goes further. He says not only should everyone, all married, single, young, old, honor marriage, honor God, and respect his institution according to his terms, but he also says that those who are married must be faithful to keep their marriage vows. For they committed to an exclusive relationship as husband and wife. To sexual purity and chastity within the bonds of marriage. And then he says God will judge the sexually immoral. That is sexual conduct outside of marriage in general. And also he will judge the sin of adultery, unfaithfulness to one's spouse. I want to pause and say this. For the true believer, sexual sins, no matter how great, no matter how small, will not result in final judgment. I need to be clear. There are severe consequences to sexual immorality. Believers who find themselves committing sexual sin are called to repent, to turn to Christ for forgiveness, and to find in Him restoration. 
And let me just issue this call to you. Today, if you're struggling with sexual sin, unmarried, married, in general, in particular, whatever it is, I want to ask you to come and see me. I want to encourage you to go to an elder. I want to encourage you to confide in a close friend who's a believer. Most of all, I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you to flee to Christ. No matter what you have committed, Jesus forgives. And he not only forgives, he restores. And he not only restores, he will use you in his kingdom. Sometimes I think we forget that we actually have power to change. It's not our power, but it's the power of God the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus. Those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are not only those who honor marriage, not only those who are faithful in marriage, but those who are content. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either we will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then notice the reason the writer of Hebrews gives us for contentment in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. And Bob read from Psalm 118. The first part of Psalm 118 was the call to worship as well as the last part. And Bob read in the middle and he read verse 6. Verse 6 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, where we read, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus said it this way. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I, I, I believe that the original uh, audience or the original recipients <coughs> excuse me, of this, this letter were anxious people. They were facing persecution for their faith. They were being pressured to forsake Jesus and to turn again to Judaism or go to prison. And don't we struggle with contentment? Don't we struggle with being anxious today? Contentment, in many respects, has always been elusive to the believer. I'm not content in my job. I'm not content with my income. Not content with my possessions. Not content with my marriage. I'm content with my marriage, so I just want that to be <laughs> said. But maybe others aren't. Uh, not content with my family, and the list goes on of where we're not content. And if we're not content, likely the reason is we lack trust in God as our helper. 
as we just read. We lack trust in God as the one who provides for us as we seek the first things, the things of his kingdom. I just love how Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment. He, he wrote a book on the rare jewel of Christian contentment. <laughs> What's funny, we think we're the only culture who lacks contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote about contentment in the 16th century, Puritan era preacher. And he, and he defined contentment this way, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I just love that. It's that inward rest and trust in God's sovereignty in his gracious disposal in every condition. Paul describes contentment this way, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then third, those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are not only those who persevere in brotherly love and persevere in holiness, but also are those who imitate leaders in the church. And I think the key to what the writer is saying here is, at least for me, is not to focus so much on the congregation imitating the leader, but is the leader worthy to be imitated? Leaders, specifically elders, ruling and teaching, and I would include deacons here too as ordained officers in the church, are to be examples of faith to the congregation. Fellow officers, are, are we orthodox? Do we hold to the truth? Do we embrace the high Christology declared in chapters 1 through 12 of, of Hebrews? Is the outcome of our way of life consistent with the glorious realities of the Lord Jesus Christ declared in Scripture? And what is at stake? The sobering fact is this. The spiritual health of this congregation will not be greater than the spiritual health of, its, of her leaders. Men, let us endeavor to live up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for the office of elder and deacon, that by God's grace that we might be godly examples of faith for this congregation to follow. Those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who imitate the faith of the saints that have gone before us, Hebrews chapter 11, and the saints that are living today. And then in conclusion, and the fourth point, those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who depend wholly on Christ. The, the, the author in, in verse 8 declares Christ is trustworthy. He is trustworthy as the eternal second person of the Trinity, immutable, unchanging. Through him, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, the world was created. The Lord Jesus was trustworthy yesterday. He is trustworthy today as the great high priest who offered himself for our salvation and who continually intercedes for his people at the throne of grace. 
chapters 4 and 7 of Hebrews. And he is trustworthy forever as the reigning victorious king. The writer talks about this in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever means we can place our full confidence in him for everything we need with regards to sound doctrine and with regards to the power and ability to live consistent with that sound doctrine, to live rightly, to live virtuously. He is the power for living the Christian life. For 12 chapters, the author, pastor of Hebrews, has declared the glorious truths about the person and work of Christ. Now in chapter 13, he exhorts believers to live out, to live virtuously, the practical implications of that doctrine, primarily in brotherly love, holiness, and imitation. And now he tells us how we go about living faithfully. Maybe you would agree with me that there's a struggle to love others. Maybe you would agree with me that it's a struggle to be holy. Maybe you would agree with me that it is a struggle to be a worthy example as a pastor, as an elder, as a parent, as a husband. Think of all the ways that you are to serve as a leader to which people look to imitate. We struggle. Sometimes we fail miserably. What do we do? I don't know if you've had this experience, <clears throat> but I, I needed help, and so <clears throat> I called this 24-7 <laughs> helpline. Have you ever done that? And this is what I got. Hi, thank you for calling. I'm an automated assistant. And I understand what you are saying. So just speak normally, and, and I will help you. Apparently, I don't speak normally. This thing, this crazy automated assistant was sending me all over the place, none of which I needed. Didn't help me one bit. It is so frustrating not to get a real person, <laughs> but to get an automated assistant. If you've not tried that, I would hardly recommend it. You need a little spice in your life. Listen, we have this glorious privilege. We have the ultimate 24-7 helpline. And when we call, we never get an automated assistant. <laughs> when we call, when we pray, when we cry out for help, when we say, I can't do this anymore. I can't love like I'm supposed to love. I can't live a holy life. I'm struggling with that sin like I'm supposed to live. I struggle imitating. I don't even think about other people, even to imitate them. When we call, when we pray, when we cry out for help in the, in the midst of our need, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, we don't get an automated assistant. We get the great high priest who has promised to dispense 
the grace that we need to help us in our need. Talk about love as setting self aside to meet another's need. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He set himself aside on the cross to meet our need. And he's continually interceding for us today at the throne of grace. We have the power to live virtuously, being consistent to the great doctrines of the Bible. And that power is the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we as yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those who persevere in holding fast in Christ by faith are those who depend wholly on our trustworthy great high priest who is continually interceding for us. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that you would pour out your grace and mercy upon us. Oh, great high priest, would you fill our hearts with grace and to enable us to not only hold to the right doctrine, the truth, and embrace it, but by your power that we would live consistent with it, that we would live virtuously as your disciples. And we thank you and praise you for your trustworthiness and your power and your work of intercession on our behalf 24-7. Amen. Would you take your